There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome, and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest polities, and its legacy can still be felt today. Its dukes inherited, conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to Hanseatic merchants, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, a history of Valois Burgundy. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 277, The New Roman Empire, with Antony Caldellis, part 1, Government. As you know by now, Professor Caldellis has written a new history of Byzantium, though I shouldn't use that word, it is called The New Roman Empire. It covers the entire narrative of Roman history from the founding of Constantinople to the fall of the empire in 1453. This is an academic history. It is a synthesis of all the available scholarship on the topic, together with Professor Caldellis' own analysis. It is essential for students, and those of you who can't get enough of Byzantine history will love it. If you want to know more about any topic in Byzantine history, then you can now go straight to this book, and follow the footnotes to your heart's content. Professor Caldellis has been incredibly generous to us and agreed to talk about the book across four separate episodes. In our third episode, we'll be going through the narrative and discussing things that I missed out on during the podcast. And in episode four, I'll put your questions to him, which is very exciting. But for the first two interviews, we're going to tackle big topics that uh, I haven't covered in as much depth, in part because the podcast began in 476 rather than 330 AD. So we're going to be talking about Christianity and the law, and today we're going to begin with the government. 
Now, this is a topic we have touched on before, and it builds on Professor Caldellis' work in his other books, including The Byzantine Republic. But I thought you'd appreciate hearing it all analysed in one go. We talk about the personality of the Roman state, how it tried to convince its citizens of its legitimacy, and whether this worked, and how the system of emperors can be understood as a republican monarchy. This is a longer episode than normal, so don't be afraid to take a break and uh, come back when you can take in more uh, amazing content. Here is, then, part one of this series. Professor Anthony Caldellis, welcome once again to the History of Byzantium podcast. Thank you, Robin. It's great to be back. Well, your generosity knows no bounds, and... uh, We've we've had a lot of fun, but now it's time to get down to the serious business of uh, how the Roman government functioned. That is <laughs> today's topic. I think our topic knows no bounds, and I think we both can't get enough of it. So <laughs> <laughs> it is very true. I've just got back from a tour around Turkey with listeners of the podcast, and be- between that. 10-day period and my conversations with you is the only time I get to talk to people who have any idea what I'm talking about or what I do. So it's it's been a a joyful couple of months. I wish I could say the same about some of my classes here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So as I said in my introduction, we're here to talk about um, aspects of your new history of uh, the Byzantine state, the new Roman Empire. And because the podcast began in 476, a lot of listeners will have missed out on um, some of the building blocks of the Eastern Roman state. And so today I wanted to talk about how the government functioned and a little bit about things that um, shoot off from that, like justice. And um, that was definitely one of the more eye-opening parts of the book. And so I'm hoping you can um, open some ears today with some insights on how this new Roman state functioned. So obviously we're taking listeners back to the early fourth century when the new capital is founded. So even though it's replicating the existing system of government, there's obviously a lot of change, a lot of adaption as people in the Eastern Roman Empire now um, recalibrate themselves towards Constantinople. So one of the subheadings you chose when you began to describe how the government functioned was the personality of government. And I wondered why you chose that phrase and how you see the personality of this new Roman government. Well, Robin, I'm glad that you found those chapters interesting because they were probably the most difficult ones to write and took the most time and effort. And being at the very beginning of the book, you know, it's it stalled me a little bit there. And anyway, it was a bit of a hump I had to get over it. Um, to reach the narrative parts. But I think that it's very important to lay the foundations uh, for how we understand the state. Because after all, our field is really defined by the historical existence of this state. Obviously, the history is also a history of a people. It's a history of a society and so forth. It's also the history, part of the history of a religion, what emerges as Eastern Orthodoxy, right? But The historical form that all of these things take is that of the East Roman state. So it's very important to get it right. And in particular, to find a model that 
gets away from the traditional models, especially of Enlightenment polemic and kind of all of the negative views of the, um, quote, Byzantine state, right? And I didn't want to critique those because this is a history that presents, you know, it kind of opens a window so that people can see what was going on, not to engage in critique and, you know, controversy and so forth. But it is important to say that certain models had to be sort of rejected. And there's this enlightenment model of the East Roman state as despotic, oppressive, kind of an oriental despotism, right? Where there are, you know, it's kind of murderous and secretive and unaccountable, and there's no civic virtue, no public space, etc. Um, so this is a model, by the way, that if you focus on the personalities of certain emperors, you can sort of get, and, and in particular, if you look at the fourth century. So you're a Roman historian. Let's say you're an ancient Roman historian. You're coming along, da, 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 and you go through the third century crisis, and then you hit characters like Diocletian and Constantine and Constantius, and then Julian, it was weird, and then you jump to Valence. And all those characters, their personalities, right, are in the historical sources, either murderous, paranoid, suspicious, right? We've got Ammianus's narrative, which doesn't help. And there was this conflation between the personalities of the emperors and the kind of state that they kind of inaugurated, right? And Enlightenment thinkers were sort of very happy to write those traits large, right? So this is something I had to find a solution to. Uh, and there are other models, by the way, that I also tried to avoid. Um, one of them is the um, this kind of metaphysical theocratic model, which produces a very abstract formula for what the Byzantine state is that stems from theology. Um, you know, that's it's a fantasy fiction in, in a certain way. Um, and there's another one that's currently going around, which is just about the opposite of having a personality at all. So this is one where there are these distant elites in Constantinople and, you know, provincials have a relationship to them that's something between, I don't know, the relationship you have with your internet provider and the tax, then the revenue service, right? The IRS, something like that. It's kind of asymmetrical, unfair, their inequalities, you don't love them. They provide some sort of service, but uh, you know you could do better. And it's anyway, this is a kind of neoliberal model of the Byzantine state. And you can find it in some places, but um, I, I don't think that that really explains what was going on. So I was drawn to a very different model that emerged in the research of the past, I would say, 20 years or so, which we will talk about. Um, and I tried to give it some some sort of flesh and blood. So personality. Personality is a metaphor. So I mentioned earlier the personalities of these emperors. Um, and we can, you know, take the most mediocre of them, who was probably Valens, right? He wasn't too, you know, he was hardworking, conscientious, more or less, um, but suspicious, paranoid, probably not up to the task in some ways, um, you know, persecuted 
magicians because he was afraid of them, right? Like there's all this intrigue and so forth. So that's the personality of some emperors who have been taken as kind of paradigmatic, kind of exemplary of East Roman decadence and oppression. But if you look at all of those emperors, not through what they, how they appear as historical figures, but how they express themselves in their official pronouncements. And I mean, in particular, like laws that they issued, but also all kinds of other texts that emanate from their court, like as trying to represent them to their subjects. You get a very different picture. Um, and historians have gradually realized this, that the late Roman state is trying to construct a persona that it projects to its subjects that has particular traits. Um, now, just to be clear up front, this is a rhetorical construction, but it's still a kind of personality, all right? So here's the personality of the late Roman state as it emerges from its own discourse, not from the personalities of the emperors in it, right? And we have to make sure that, we have to say, that the personality problems of the emperors were often limited to the people, you know, directly around them, right? So for example, Constantine is one of the most murderous emperors in Roman history. But that's true really if you're only in his family. <laughs> like if you weren't somehow a dynastic threat, you, he was no different from anyone else really and probably better than most. Um, okay, so the interesting thing about the personality of the late Roman state as it itself tried to project it is that it's fairly consistent across all of these different emperors. And, and this is what interested me, right? So um, it's it has a certain mode of talking about what it wants to do, about the kinds of relationships that it wants to establish with its subjects that is fairly consistent across time. And in fact, consistent pretty much down to the end of the East Roman Empire altogether, right? And what are these traits? Okay, so I'm just going to mention them so that, you know, everyone can get a picture here. So the traits are a kind of paternalistic solicitude for the welfare of its subjects. Um, <clears throat> paternalistic, not, not in necessarily a bad way. It's like, like, I'll take care of you, like that kind of um, um, attitude. And, and very specifically, this is universally extended, right? So it's not like I'm only going to look after like my people or the Romans or this particular subset, but the emperors are very emphatic again and again and again that they're trying to do well by everyone under their jurisdiction. So universal benevolence in a way. The second one is that they intend to ensure law, the rule of law, and fairness, right? In other words, the, the emperors or their spokesmen keep recognizing that there are problems of lawlessness and unfairness in the system. They keep saying this. They, they know it. And they're constantly trying to correct these abuses or inequalities um, by stressing, for example, that they're going to protect the weak 
against the abuses of the poor, uh, sorry, of the rich, right? So there's the weak and the poor on the one hand and the rich and the powerful on the other. And the emperors consistently in their rhetoric come down on the side of protecting the weak and the poor. Another one is that this is a responsive state. Um, and this has gotten a lot of play in recent scholarship where we don't see it as oppressive, we see it more as responsive. In other words, it wants to make it known that if subjects have a problem or a question, they will address it or answer it. Um, that it will respond to their problems by taking action. So for example, uh, a region has a very bad harvest uh, one, uh, one year, can't pay taxes. You petition the court and ask for an exemption. Um, or if there's a local famine for relief, like send right, supplies from elsewhere, or we've got a problem with barbarian raiders, send some protect units to protect us, that kind of thing. Or legally. Um, so the laws don't clarify a particular situation. And so, um, you know, your your wealthy, powerful neighbor can use an ambiguous law to, you know, take something from you or oppress you in some way, or officials are committing injustices because they're following the strict letter of the law rather than what you know, provincials think is fair, you have a right to petition the emperor or his legal representatives to fix that problem, right? And so this is a, a state in which there's a lot of communication coming up from below, um, seeking some sort of redress, right? Um, so it's a responsive state, and it, it also assumes the persona of being an accountable state. In other words, it says we're going to do these kinds of things. We're going to protect you from barbarian invasions. We're going to ensure law and order. We're going to ensure the system is fair. We're going to protect the weak and so forth. We're going to respond to your petitions. I mean, you might not like what they say. They might say no, but they will respond. Um, and accountability means that they under the state understands that its subjects are looking to see that it does these things. And moreover, because it does these things through its own officials, right? it holds its own officials accountable to those standards. And, and this is a very important point. The, the old sort of despotic oriental, the oriental despotism model of um, you know, Byzantium and so on was in part based on uh, this very angry language that the emperors use in many of their laws where they're threatening these extreme punishments and, you know, I'll pour molten gold down your throat or, you know, this kind of thing. You know, I'll cut off your hands and such. It wasn't noticed by by scholars who were, you know, troubled by this and, and made a big deal of it. Like, huh, Rome really gets angry at this point. It wasn't noticed that the most extreme language is most often directed at officials of the state whom the emperors want to keep in line, right? And if you look at the Theodosian Code or the Justinianic Code, so these are the compilations of the decrees issued by the emperors, a large number of sort of punishments and threats and kind of, you know, shaking your fist at people is directed at the state's own officials for 
corruption, injustice, negligence, whatever. And this is kind of extraordinary if you think about it. In other words, you know, sometimes the Roman Empire is called a military dictatorship, and in a certain way that's true. But there are not many military dictatorships that make available to their subjects so many legal means by which they can hold their own sort of lower and mid-level officials accountable. Uh, even high officials, though, that's obviously harder, right? So the the burden is higher the, you know, the, the, the higher up you reach into the court to hold people accountable. Sometimes you just have to protest in the streets for that to happen. Sure. Um, but um, uh, there's every indication that subjects did use these laws. Um, so the period that is most documented is um, the early period, um, especially um, in Egypt. So from the fourth to the sixth centuries. And there we have very many cases of ordinary, you know, I mean, non-state officials who are bringing some sort of official complaint against someone who at the time that they committed some sort of violation or injustice were state officials. Well, there's a lot of that. Um, we don't have evidence for labor just because we don't have like, you know, court records. Uh, but when we do get some again in the 11th century, this is happening again. So lots of state officials are being brought to court for, you know, abuse of power. Um, so those are the main personality traits of the East Roman state in its in the way it wanted to present itself, sort of universally benevolent, that is accepting the responsibility of, you know, protecting and ensuring the welfare of its subjects universally, uh, ensuring law and order and, and fairness at protecting the weak and poor, um, being responsive to the needs and petitions of its subjects and being accountable. Um, especially in keeping its own officials in line, like recognizing that a big part of the problem is that, you know, you, you have this big government now, right? By ancient standards, you know, the East Roman Empire has pretty significant cadres of officials. So there's more opportunity for corruption. There are more levels where friction can occur. And so it ramps up um, its efforts to keep this in line. So... That's the persona, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you, if you look at, say, Diocletian or Constantine or Valence under that light, you see that, oh, they're all pursuing that kind of agenda that is of constructing a state that has that kind of uh, image among its subjects, right? So... That's why I use the term personality. Um, it seemed the best term to use um, as a metaphor, right? To, to just catch the attention and focus it on those kinds of traits. So, I mean, this is very interesting. It, it, it's what I like about the the way you've analyzed that is I think that will chime with a lot of modern listeners who've heard of similar things about our own governments today that new administrations coming in promising to change education policy but then books will come out saying education policy hasn't changed in the last 70 years so it's interesting that you see that same thing where across even a thousand years there are certain traits of government that stay the same that don't change 
uh, despite all the different emperors who come and go. Um, I mean, my, my next question, you may want to add, but my question would be, so why? Why do they care so much about projecting this personality to their subjects? Well, in part, I think it was a survival mechanism. In part, it's also deeply ingrained in Roman tradition. That is, this is what it means to be... Um, you know, a leader in the Roman state. And let me say that you find the same kind of rhetoric, like not in quite as focused and pointed a form, but you find it already like under Augustus, right? Except that in the early Roman Empire, in the early imperial period, it's mostly directed at like Romans who are a minority of the population of the empire. In other words, it's, it's it's ingrained in the nature of a Roman state that its government apparatus is supposed to work for the benefit of all Romans. Now, in the early imperial period, the Romans will very often refer to the other provincials like as their slaves. Now, this is, I mean, a lot of them were slaves, but metaphorically, right, it's a metaphor when applied to um, the majority of provincials. In other words, the non-Romans are not, like there's an unequal relationship there. And that's what changes over time, um, especially when all the provincials do become Romans, when right the armies and the Senate and then most of the emperors are from the provinces. And um, it does acquire um, this, um, uh, you know, uh, nature of a universal state in that way. And so this kind of rhetoric is applied then throughout, all right? The whole it's just an extension of old Roman modes of understanding what the purpose of a government is. In part, right? That's in part. Um, but there is more going on, and in the troubles of the third century, kind of heighten this a lot. So there's a lot of political instability caused by uh, provincials or provincial armies that rebel um, and the Roman state kind of fractures for a while and emperors are being assassinated left and right. And it required tremendous effort to put it back together again. So emperors like Aurelian and Diocletian did this. And in the aftermath of that, almost terminal like set of disasters. I mean, the, that could have been the end um, for the Roman Empire. Um, it could have broken into regional states. Parts of it could have been conquered by quote barbarians from the outside and so forth. But they managed to pull it together. And in the aftermath, um, there's a, a new kind of consensus emerges about, you know, how the the Roman state is going to interact with its subjects. Um, and it, it proves to be incredibly successful. Um, by the way, to indicate just how successful, I, I think that this consensus, I mean, we might loosely call it a social contract today, but I don't want to put too much emphasis right on the on the modern philosophical dimensions of that um, term. <clears throat> the Roman term is consensus. So there is this kind of consensus. Um, and it, it's very successful because I think it um, creates um, 
a, a new understanding between provincials and the the court and the armies and the tax system and so forth about what's going on in all of this and what's at stake. So emperors are basically being asked. Um, no, let me rephrase that. Emperors are asking to be judged by a certain set of standards that they think will be acceptable. And if they are found to be acceptable by those standards, then the the implicit understanding is that provincials won't give them much trouble, right? Put differently, this is the way by which the regime or the state legitimates itself in the eyes of its subjects. And this is very, very important, right? Um, this isn't so much a question of whether you accept the imperial apparatus as a whole that is having an emperor, but rather this particular one. Right? So it's much harder to change the whole imperial system, obviously, but it's much easier to change any particular emperor. So in order to create stability, what that means is stability of like from one regime to another, um, that is one administration from one emperor to another, not necessarily uh, of the imperial order as a whole. And in fact, they were very successful at this in the sense that, um, you know, after the chaos of the third century, you then see for centuries, in the East at least, it's almost impossible for uh, provincial rebellions to succeed, um, you know, or for armies to put up a new emperor and replace the existing one in Constantinople. And that's not because of some, they found some miracle technology or whatever that prevented that from happening. It's that in, really what they did was is sap the... Um, the discontent, the grounds of discontent from the relevant populations, right? Not everybody, obviously, right? Um, but you just had to make sure that especially local elites, small land, even small landowners, about 50% of the provincial population were probably um, owned their own land enough to get by on. Um, the major part of city populations and the armies. So something over 50% of the population, this is the relevant constituency. If you can persuade them that your regime is doing these things, which are on the face of them unobjectionable and even desirable, you're much less likely to face uh, rebellions that have a serious chance of unseating you. And and when you do see rebellions, they're largely because the regime is perceived by certain segments as having failed in these precise personality traits, mm. right? Um, so it is a matter of legitimacy and survival also, I think. It, mm. It's a kind of contract between every among everyone here. It's really interesting because it, um, it, you know, that became very apparent to me just following the narrative that each individual emperor was very concerned with legitimacy as a as a concept an idea you, you that you can't there's no guarantee at any time that it's going to hold but you buttress it all the time to try and keep yourself in power and so in a way in in response to that third century crisis or repeated crises the whole state kind of learns to communicate with its subjects in a new way to to try and prevent discontent yeah. from happening before it begins in a way 
Yes, because it doesn't have other legitimating mechanisms such that we see, you know, so for example, a monarch, a hereditary monarchy, all the monarchs simply point to heredity and like, well, that's why I'm the king. It's open and shut. Like, why are you right? Um, or if you have elections, um, the administration might be unpopular, but its legitimacy to govern until the next election is sort of assumed as part of the system, right? You might be seen as, <laughs> I mean, the, the news coming out of the UK is a kind of similar phenomenon. The, the government might be failing to persuade the population that it's acting in its interest or succeeding, right? Uh, in doing so, and might be horribly unpopular. And every poll suggests that if there were an election today, you would lose badly. But its legitimacy as the current government is, you know, unquestionable until the next election, right? But the Roman Empire lacks those mechanisms of either heredity or election. So the emperors have to be constantly reassuring their subjects that they are doing these things, right? And so let me add here that, so, you know, someone might say, well, that's all fine and good, like in rhetoric, but did it actually do those things, right? Um, I, a, a long time ago, I was persuaded by Machiavelli that you should judge people and states not by what they say, by what they do. And this was actually very important for me for understanding, for example, U.S. foreign policy, where the gap is huge, right? Um, that was very, very important principle. And yes, when you're looking at like U.S. foreign policy, you should always look at uh, facts on the ground and outcomes, not the rhetorical declarations. Um, however, that approach has its limitations. Um, as I have found. And, and let me illustrate in the following way. Let's suppose that you're sort of subject to an authority that you don't much like. And you could be like a, a student at a school and this is your principal or it could be anything, right? It makes a difference if that authority is at least mouthing things to reassure you that no, no, this is in your best interest. And Here's why, and we are, you know, we we have the same values, we're whatever. You're far more likely to grumble and go along with it than if it were just outright saying, like, no, I'm in charge and you're gonna do what I say, whether you like it or not. Right? Even if they're doing the same things, those two scenarios produce very different results. Right. Um, so the rhetorical posture, the personality or persona, if you want to treat it as a mask, was, I think, itself very important um, for establishing or in ensuring the success of this consensus. But beyond that, I actually came to the conclusion that the East Roman government actually did try to do most of those things. Um, you know, ancient governments don't have the kind of capacity for secrecy that ours do. What they did was much more in the open and could be judged very quickly and easily by even sort of unsophisticated observers. 
And by and large, I don't think that they could have gotten away with an extremely duplicitous approach of saying that we're protecting you from the barbarians, but not but not doing it. Um, so, and anyway, in a sense, the rest of the book, the narrative part, uh, was it, it showed to me as I was working it out that for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, emperors were um, acting in good faith about, like they were, they were interested in actually achieving those results, you know, in the kind of hit and miss way that you can uh, with the, you know, these kind of pre-modern, pre-modern tools of governance. So that would lead me to ask you, how do you see them? Um, living up to at least some of their rhetoric. I mean, we can say from the narrative, they send out armies all the time, you know, uh, particularly in the sort of middle centuries, they're constantly dealing with the Bulgars and the Arabs from East and West. You know, there's not many years go by where they're not responding directly to attacks. But in some of these other criteria, so being accountable and responsive and maintaining law and order and protecting the weak um obviously you've got a, a thousand years to draw on but just in general i think you you make the case in the book that they they more or less did live up to those things that 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 those were largely the policies of government would that be fair or, or at least they tried to and and this is the important thing were by and large perceived as trying to do that like mm-hmm. it's impossible to expect perfect outcomes here. And, you know, it's po- I, I think it's likely that pre-modern populations had lower expectations, um, right? But here's, you have to balance, um, no, not balance, but interpret the results in light of the impositions by the state. What's it, what's it asking for and what it's getting, right? Um, and this is a fascinating uh, topic in which I'm, I'm now actually kind of writing a separate essay which is yeah i mean yeah not to put too fine a point on it but why did the eastern roman empire last for so long right and i don't think it could have lasted for so long if there wasn't some significant provincial buy-in or at least tacit acceptance of its practices now here are its practices its practices are basically uh tax collection <laughs> Right now, in the neoliberal model that I mentioned earlier, this is seen with a kind of cynical Marxism light, kind of like, well, these are elites extracting things for themselves and whatever. And I don't think that's the case at all. So the East Roman state managed to generate more revenues than just about any of its peers or rivals, just in terms of cash. Right. Um, there are emperors who famously left huge reserves of cash or like Manuel Comnenus, we've discussed them before, who were just throwing money around. So Romania was just very well known as, as having all of this money. All right. Well, it's not like Asia Minor and Eastern Greece are that much more fertile or productive lands than any other part of the world. Um, it's because a particular kind of economy was maintained, right, where the state would pay salaries to its officials across the territory, soldiers, uh, you know, generals, whatever. 
that money would enter the cash cycle um, and would end up in the hands of, uh, you know, provincials, uh, land local landowners who would then pay taxes in it. And if they couldn't, if they didn't get a hold of too much gold, there were uh, money changers who could, you know, perform these kinds of conversions for them. Um, and that money would then go back to the to the state. Now, so that's one thing. The state generates enormous amounts of revenue comparatively. Also, it has a reputation for being very oppressive and in terms of its taxation, like overbearing in terms of um, its demands such that it stifled the economy, impoverished its whatever. Okay, this is probably not true. Um, now, we don't know what the absolute tax rates were actually. They're very difficult to calculate, like exactly what um, it was extracting. Um, however, I can tell you that taxpayer discontent is subjective, right? So in the 50s and 60s, the marginal tax rates for income in the US at the highest level was like 90%. <laughs> And people, you know, they were grumbling, but it was accepted because of the like the ideological context. Now that they are like less than half of that and where the real money is significantly less than half of that, our moneyed elites are like howling with rage that they get taxed at all. And that's, again, because their ideologies have changed and, you know, whatever. We're in just different contexts. So it's not the absolute rates that matter it's whether you think that it's fair and necessary right so so here's the paradox this, this is a real paradox of like east roman economic history we have probably fairly efficient taxation we have very few indications that the state was unable to extract um as a widespread tax evasion not really attested. Modern historians will sometimes mention it, but I don't see the proof for it. So this fairly efficient at collecting taxation. Let's say that it was extracting on the high end because it had all this money, right? And at the same time, we have very extensive complaints about taxation, like constantly, almost every generation, you find some, right? Complaints, complaints, complaints. Taxation is too high. Horror stories about people driven to destitution or suicide because whatever. Okay. And you think, well, if you put all those things together, that's a recipe for disaster. Like how did this survive for very long if, right, if the state is just alienating everyone with high taxation? Okay, I don't think that was going on at all. So here's where you sort of push back against this picture. And I'll mention two things. Um, and remember... We're talking here only about taxation, not so much about the justice system. We can get to that later. But taxation, two things. First, we can kind of gauge the health of the economy uh, through proxy data of like archaeology, for example. They're not perfect, but there are periods when you see cities and settlements contract, um, the material culture being, you know, much more you know, crude, rudimentary, primitive, you name it. And there are periods when you see settlements expand, 
the material culture become, you know, much higher quality in terms of the houses, the implements that you find, right, and so forth. Lo and behold, the periods of economic contraction correspond almost entirely to periods of um, high en uh, enemy raiding and war and where the Roman state is on, on the back foot and trying to defend itself, like fighting for its survival. And the periods of economic prosperity are precisely those periods when the provinces are not affected by foreign attacks and when the state has like imposed its own order, whatever it thinks those are, that is, um, uh, on the provinces without outside interference. Um, for example, uh, like between the late fourth and early sixth century, you see this in the East, there's a lot of economic and demographic growth. Not only that, but the economy is more monetized. So, you know, by 500, more people have more coins to pay for more things. And it happens again between like the late eighth and the 12th centuries, right? Um, when they manage to contain Arab raiding in Asia Minor, once the emperors secure the frontiers, you start to get economic growth again, right? So that indicates to me, just as a kind of macroeconomic, you know, gauge, that in precisely the periods when the state can, let's say, do what it wants with its subjects economically, they're generally doing better, right? So how so this can't have been a crushing level of taxation that prevented um, investment because we know that this economic growth happens because they're clearing lands and draining marshes and things like that, which are investments, right? Um, and happening all over, not just in specific areas. Um, though some areas, yeah, there is always some areas are doing better and some areas are doing worse for all kinds of factors that you know we can't always account for. Okay, so that's one thing. What about all those complaints? Well, because there is a literature of complaints from this society. They almost wrote poetry about it. Like there are authors who just relish in talking about all the taxes and fees and levies and imposts and surcharges and whatever. Like they just make a whole, and they all have these Latinate names. So it's all weird in Greek and anyway. Okay. So what I think is going on there is I'll refer you back to the culture of responsiveness and accountability that I mentioned. So here's, here's what I think is happening. Here's why I think these complaints are not indicators of a society being crushed by taxation, but rather a society that knows that its government is, is responsive and there, there was a system whereby you can petition for a tax exemption or relief or whatever, right? Now, there are a number of reasons you can do that. You know, the, the harvest might not have been good. There might have been a barbarian invasion or a raid or whatever. Some of your people got taken off or there was a plague or, um, or and here's another category, you happen to have a very abusive uh, and corrupt official who came by and he fleeced everybody, right? That happened, sure. So there are all of these reasons for which provincials can petition the court or the relevant uh, branch office of whatever, you know, the tax collecting uh, bureaus um, for relief. 
And this leads to a kind of rhetorical arms race in presenting your situation as so dire that the authorities are sort of morally obligated to do something to help you. And it becomes a kind of, you know, it's it's a rhetorical trope that subjects use to get attention, especially because they're also competing with other subjects who are doing the same thing everywhere. Um, and, you know, these petitions are, or texts are often written by the literate classes who are trained in rhetoric, and they know how to make an over-the-top emotional appeal and how to tell a story that will move you to tears. And so what I'm seeing in all of that is, I mean, if you look at it from a distance, it's a kind of safety valve for the system. In other words, if you feel that you're being overcharged, you you also feel that you have a recourse, right? It's not as if this isn't like a, you know, uh, a foreign occupation situation where the soldiers just come in and take your cows and that's it. They, you know, they don't care if you live or die because the Roman authorities are actually interested in your producing next year as well. It makes It's no good to them if they drain you, you know, bleed you dry right now. What are they going to do next year? You know, they have to make money next year too. Um, so there's actually a kind of there are political channels here that act as a safety valve. The population feels that the government is listening to them. The government keeps saying that it's listening to them. And now I think that all of that, to get back to the, the power of words just by themselves, just being able to do that, even if you didn't actually get anything from it, is a kind of political safety valve and you blow off steam that way you, you whatever you feel like you've been heard right this is actually quite common in, in like petitions today citizens in modern countries you know petition local governments state governments federal governments for this or that and the other thing and what drives them mad more than anything is not being heard or or feeling that they're not being heard that that their complaint just goes into the vacuum and you often see this like they sometimes just respond in the most um, extreme ways when they feel that no one's listening. Whereas if they feel that they've been heard and there's a hearing and they get, they say, and even if it goes against them, yeah, they'll grumble, whatever. But I think it, it produces a lot less discontent. Hmm. So this is how I think the system is working. And I can go, I can go through, you know, you talked about the armies. I think it's very clear that the Roman armies are acting in pretty much the ways that the emperors say that they are to protect the you know provincial Roman population, especially in the periods like seventh to after the seventh century when it was a much more serious matter, um, and that the and that the provincial population was perfectly aligned with the mission of the Roman army. I, I, I'll just give you one illustration of this. Like after the seventh century, you rarely ever hear of like abuses committed by soldiers on the provincial population. It, I mean, they do, but it gets very rare. Um, so I think there's an alignment there, but that's that's a matter of like survival when it comes to the army. The, the trickiest argument was to make about taxation because you gotta align all of these different parts of the argument together, even if they seem to be pointing in the opposite direction and have long been taken to be pointing in the opposite direction. But I think that the survival of this state 
um, is 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 the biggest indicator that this system was working. And I mean, hard evidence for tax discontent would be a revolt based on taxation, either right. uh, you know provincial unrest or even a, a usurper who whose program is I will reduce taxes, which we never hear of. I mean, which is a very strong argument for 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 saying that the taxation levels were relatively accepted. So this is another political, you know, valve. It's just, it's just a supercharged one. So yes, we know that there are lots of coups and rebellions in East Roman history, um, whose purpose is always just to replace the emperor in Constantinople, um, never to break away. Right? This is important. So when provincial populations feel that perhaps, let, let's say, the the current emperor is taxing too much, there are always complaints about this, always, always, always. And let's suppose, just for the sake of argument, let's suppose that um, this was actually a motivating factor in like, no, I'm going to support rebel, general, whatever, uh, because, you know, he will fix this problem. He'll go to Constantinople and he'll lower it. Oh, you know, by the way, I can think of a case. Um, this is actually the first um rebel um in in you know after the foundation of constantinople is this guy called procopius not the historian this is a fourth century guy named procopius 364 365 who rebelled against valens and the the odd thing is that procopius was in constantinople and gained control of it and valens was in asia minor valens wins in the end uh, you know through you know military action but one of the um one of the grounds of discontent that Procopius tapped into was that people in and around Constantinople did not like the way one of Valens's officials was collecting taxes. It was too heart strict. And, and specifically, Amiana says that this guy was like not remitting past taxes. <laughs> Just think about that for a moment. It means that there's an expectation that like, if you didn't pay taxes 10 years ago and you somehow got away with it, that the state is not going to come after you for those back taxes, right? That's that's fascinating by itself, that, that this is expectation, right? Well, Procopius loses, but after Valens wins, he really scales back the strictness of tax collection. So he learns his lesson, right? So in a certain sense, this is a, <laughs> rebellion is in a way a supercharged petition. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, the people who supported Procopius weren't punished by Valens, really. I mean, he he was angry at Constantinople as a whole afterwards. Hey, what are you going to do? Maybe like not give them games for a few years, like, you know, whatever. OK, um, but in the end, they kind of got what they wanted. Right. So the threat of supporting a rival who might scale that back is enough to get emperors to scale it back preemptively. Right. So this is also kind of the dynamic of the system. It works that way, too. And I think this argument, from my limited perspective, benefits from a comparative approach, because at the end of sort of each century of narrative, I would sort of round up how the empire's neighbors were functioning to make the narrative make more sense. And so I saw Abbasid Baghdad collapse oh. into oh, yeah. chaos and egypt 
suffering tax revolts across multiple sort of generations of Muslim government. And we don't see that in Byzantium. Exactly. This is probably the most important uh, the dog that didn't bark in the night. But we have to you know, bring it out and, and, and look at it because you're right. For a thousand years, we don't get like what are in other fields called agrarian revolts, peasant uprisings, right? You can call them tax rebellions or whatever, whose purpose is not to like affect the political change in the capital so that things can go back to normal, but to like change the, the terms of the agreement altogether, right? Or to secede, to break away, to kill the authorities, to whatever. These are highly disruptive events that happened in Egypt, you know, before this is fascinating. Egypt was kind of rocked by these kinds of things, but not during the periods of rule by Constantinople. Like that's the thinnest, right? When it comes to like agrarian discontent in Egypt. And that's got to mean something, right? But you're right. Like late Abbasid Baghdad is just, it's ungovernable. It's just impossible for the authorities to get anything done there. Um, uh, you'll have, you know, regions that call, that cause perpetual armed, uh, that are responsible for armed conflict on and on and on and on. This doesn't happen. And I think it's because the system was working in this way. And by the way, this is a tremendous competitive advantage if we're talking about the, the, the longevity of states. I don't know that there are many states that were just brought, I mean, in China, yes. Um, in China, the agrarian revolts did bring down some of the states that emerged there. Um, you know, on this side of, I, I, offhand, I can't think of any, I know that many states were rocked by them, the Holy Roman Empire and so forth, not actually caused to collapse by them. But if you're dealing with all sorts of other problems, as they all are, and you have to deal with that on top of it, um, you know, that can push you over the, that can tip you over the edge there. Um, so I think it was a tremendous advantage that this kind of consensus worked. And that's how I understand the East Roman state. <laughs> Not perfect mm. by any means. Yeah. Uh, but it's one of the most successful attempts to create um, a high stakes um, agreement between rulers and ruled that generated incredible revenues, supported a very large standing army, like just professional, you know, salaried army, um, and uh, ensured the longevity of this state. Excellent. Um, let's briefly talk about the position of emperor, because this is something listeners bring up time and time again. Um, this kind of ultimate power in the hands of one man, who then gets overthrown repeatedly. Um, when you came to talk about this, the subheading was the monarchical republic. Um, can you elaborate a little on that phrase and talk about how how this kind of concept of legitimacy operated when it came to imperial succession? Right, or we can call it a republican monarchy, mm. right? Um, yeah, so uh, this is obviously... This usage of the terms is obviously meant to be somewhat provocative. Uh, it's to get people to sort of stop in their tracks and think, wait, what, what's being said here? This is something new. Um, and it sort of is. Um, it relies on the meaning of the term republic um, that's 
like closer to the original meaning uh, rather than the one that it acquires in modern historiography. Um, it begins to acquire this term, I don't know, maybe 15th, 16th century, that that republic means a non-monarchical uh, form of regime. But it's not until like the late 18th century that it kind of becomes in Western languages the the dominant meaning of the term. So like in the UK, a Republican is someone who doesn't want the monarchy. So they're kind of mutually exclusive in that way. That's not what the term meant um, in the original, um, well, Latin, the res publica. Yeah, it, it wasn't. And by the way, our historiography has confused this issue by calling a particular period of Roman history the Republic and, and, and sets it off against the empire. These are very confusing terms um, because um, re Republic comes from res publica and the Romans always understood their state and society to be a res publica, regardless of whether it was governed by the Senate, the Senate and the people or the emperors later on. So the usage of res publica does not stop or change in the transition from quote republic to quote empire. Add to which the quote republic was far more imperialistic than quote the empire in terms of sort of conquering lands and so forth. So we've created a sort of confusion, um, a, a tangle of confusions here. In its original sense, res publica um, designated um, yes, the, the state, like the government of the Roman people, but also um, their common interests, um, the public property, um, every every um, uh, the public affairs and everything that the Romans did collectively via their institutions of government, but also like their society kind of writ large because society was regulated by laws and laws were um, a matter for public authorities to um, uh, to decide upon. So it was a, it was imagine a um, a meaning that means both state and the parts of society that are uh, regulated or part of state operations, um, something like that. Um, it did not refer to a particular type of regime. In fact, Cicero in his treatise, the De Republica, he talks about um, res publica that are governed by a monarchy, an oligarchy, an aristocracy, or a democracy. And he like he thinks all of those are possible, but he pref obviously prefers the kind of senatorial aristocratic regime that, that he wanted. Um, so these are not mutually exclusive terms. When it comes to the monarchical phase, so yeah, the Roman Empire is basically a monarchy. Um, like under Augustus and other emperors, it was sort of trying to pretend that it wasn't. Like we all know that like, you know, it was a it was this weird situation where someone who had all, you know, usually people with power are trying to project it and make sure everybody knows that they have all this power. But like Augustus and his first successors are actually doing the opposite. <laughs> they have all this power, yeah, 30 legions, but they're trying to pretend that they don't so that the Romans can feel like there's some sort of, you know, continuity in their form of government. But anyway, it's a monarchy. The, the Greek subjects in the East understood this perfectly clearly. Um, however, it's a monarchy that has embedded in it um, a lot of the core values of the Roman tradition. Among those are what we talked about earlier, like the expectation that the that the officials in, in charge of the government are going to act in the interest of all Romans. And that if they don't do that, 
they're failing in their um, like official charge. So seeing as this monarchy has no succession system, <laughs> like we said, there's a hereditary, heredity is a very loose form of succession. Sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. Um, Roman emperors are like notoriously bad at producing enough children. I don't know why. This is something very interesting, by the way. Um, I, I've read some some accounts trying to explain why it is that Roman emperors don't produce heirs that much. Anyway, but they don't. So there's no um, succession. Um, there's no law of succession. Not only that, um, there are no institutions that are charged with handling the succession. Like even if you don't have heredity, like in the Holy Roman Empire, you you at least have like this the electors um, who meet and decide whether you know who's going to be the next um, well king of the Romans they called it or um, emperor of the Romans or whatever. You don't even have that, so it's this very ad hoc process every time. Every time it's ad hoc. Um, there are different factors that you know put up a sort of quote candidate for the throne who has backing by X, Y, Z sectors of the population or stakeholders in the Republic. Um, and then you have another process whereby that person is, um, you know, has a smooth road to the succession or faces challengers. Um, then there's another also ad hoc process of acclamation in Constantinople. That's when you're made emperor. Like you become emperor when the people in Constantinople or wherever you are locally acclaim you as emperor. Uh, it, it really is a, like that's the coronation moment. It, it's not the actual coronation. The actual coronation is just a symbolic ceremonial add-on. The real moment is acclamation. So given that every emperor exists in this situation where, I mean, not only is the succession uncertain, but his own tenure of the throne is uncertain at any moment. Like if you things start going really badly and people are grumbling, you're booed in the hippodrome and whatever. Um, so that then raises the question, okay, well, by what standards are people evaluating the job performance of an emperor such that they sometimes reach their limit and say, this guy's got to go, right? Which they often do. And I think it's precisely the ones that we've been talking about. The, these are the standards by which emperors are being judged all the time and sometimes held accountable. Um, and it's not just, um, you know, the people or many of the armies rising up and taking you down. That's the most, that's just the most dramatic way in which that can happen. But it's also, um, rivals at the court who are watching and seeing, oh, this guy's getting unpopular. If I kill him and take the throne, I won't face much resistance. So like the, the population at large need not actually do anything for this kind of Republican system of assessment to continue to operate in the sense that everyone's looking at what the, the people might do or might not do, right? Sumiskis, for example, murders Focas. And, you know, it's very carefully handled at the court. They send out heralds into the city saying, hey, this has happened. Um, keep quiet. All is well and is quiet. 
Nobody did anything, right? But when Michael V, we talked about, tries to depose Zoe, the whole population, right, rises up and takes him down. And that's because Zoe was popular. Michael V was nowhere near as popular. Whereas Focas had become very unpopular by the end of his reign, precisely for the reasons we were talking about. His taxes had become too, his tax collection had become too strict. Like there were two things. He was imposing too many taxes because his wars were costing too much. And the Romans in Constantinople were all for the wars. <laughs> they loved those wars until they started costing too much. Mm. And so he was raising taxes and doing all kinds of financial shenanigans. And that made him very unpopular. So that when he was killed, everyone's like, oh, okay, let's see what this guy does. Mm. Right. Um, and the other thing that he was doing was that his family was perceived by some to be corrupt, that they were profiteering off of the war and a famine that had occurred during one of those years. And they were hoarding and, you know, overcharging and things like that. So again, they, the regime failed in its perception, at least, in, in, in right how it was perceived by the population when it comes to taxation and corruption. And so they didn't have that kind of protection when um, they needed it. Now, nothing would have saved Falkas because he was murdered in a commando, <laughs> right? Uh, a commando operation late at night by people climbing, you know, ropes over the walls, but. His family could have survived, right? He had lots of relatives who were willing to, you know, step in. And in fact, they kept trying to do that for another 20 years or so. Um, but no, no, the Focades as a whole became unpopular because of all of this. Um, so this is what I mean by a Republican monarchy. It's a monarchy where in which the monarch is being judged by the standards of how well um, he's doing his job vis-a-vis -vis his Roman subjects. And that if he's not doing it well, um, you know, he might be ended or whatever in, in, in any combination of ways. The, the particulars are always contingent and I, I don't, I think are of, of less interest than the kind of structural situation that the emperor finds himself in. Mm. Always looking over his shoulder and, but always also looking at the people in the Hippodrome to make sure that they aren't booing. And if they're booing, you better find out why and do something about it. But And this to me is one of the most interesting aspects of your work across multiple books now, is to argue that what seems like instability to a narrative listener of my podcast, for example, you know, another emperor is being killed, particularly during times when there's an invasion and, you know, the worst possible time and so on and so on. So listeners will often say, why couldn't the Romans come up with a better system of succession? And I think your work is arguing that the people didn't want that. Focus builds a wall around the palace, and right. this is seen as a provocation. Nobody yes. in the population is going, well, this will be better for the stability of the state long term. Yes. They're saying this is an outrage because their attitude is part of the safety valve of this state is if someone's doing such a bad job, we have the right essentially to, to go in and kill them. And equally, if someone tries to remove an emperor we like, we will defend them with our lives. So the, that top position, its vulnerability 
is part of why the system works. And what I think people find difficult is that this is not a, a formal agreement like a royal bloodline. Right. It's a, it's an informal agreement, but one that goes on and on and on centuries and centuries. So it was understood by people. Yes. It's just not written down in a way that historians have picked up on easily. Exactly. It's exactly what you said. It's a feature, not a bug. Um, and it it has its it has its you know historically its positives and its negatives. So, for example, um, your audience will be familiar with the um, final major siege of Constantinople by the Arabs, um, seven seventeen to seven eighteen, masterfully handled by Leo the Third, like phenomenal strategic response that probably only he could have pulled off. And now think of the the churn of succession right before him, where you have usurpation after usurpation as one person is put in and thrown out, all the while they know that the Arabs are preparing this massive expedition by land and by sea to take Constantinople. Arab armies have you know, entered Asia Minor, they're sailing up the Aegean, and the Romans are just constantly de deposing you know, one another yeah, until they get the person who actually can do the job, and he does the job, right? But it has negative um, uh, aspects too. So think of the 1070s, right? Turks are taking over Asia Minor, and you have a weak regime in Constantinople that it's so bad at handling this situation that it starts facing multiple simultaneous rebellions by its generals, especially toward the end of the 1070s, that you know i mean didn't do any good in um you know it distracted everybody from what's going on in asia minor uh so that was a moment where like that doesn't work and but that was a, like one of the top three major crises in east roman history um but yeah you're right i think there was an understanding of how this system worked and there were many times by the way there's so many times when they appoint a childless old man to, to be emperor, like especially between the fifth and sixth centuries this happened. This was the norm. And again, in the 11th, it's like, yeah, you know that you're, this is an anti-dynastic choice. You're just putting someone in for a while and then it'll come back to you. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, let me ask you about one specific incident, which will be very uh, hopefully fresh in the listeners' minds, because I think another reason that it's taken you closely reading the sources to bring these things out is that even some of the Roman historians downplay the role of the people in this system. So I'm talking about the final period of our narrative before the Fourth Crusade, where it seems evident after um, Andronicus's death that Constantinople itself is becoming increasingly hard to govern. That the we there are there are coups happening. People are trying to replicate Isaac Angelos's rise by occupying the Hagia Sophia, and you get the sense that some aristocrats are kind of sailing back and forth from one palace to the other at the end of the city and don't don't feel confident to even march down. The, the you know the messy and and deal with the people now that's a very general sense but so coniartes is covering all this and he seems to me to ignore the people he doesn't describe in detail what's going on 
with the populace. He sticks to criticizing the Angoloi for their failures. And you think he kind of, despite trying to ignore the people, gives the game away that they are important in, in his considerations. Oh, he often give, gives that away. I mean, th- th- there, there, there are a couple of passages where he does so explicitly. But first, let me say, let me address the general point that you made at the beginning mm. there. And you're entirely right. So ancient, well, pre-modern historians generally don't do sociology, right? Um, they're terrible at describing, um, well, you know, any non-elite strata of the population. The genre of historiography was very much about wars and high politics and, you know, high personalities and all of that. And this just wasn't very much on their radar. Um, And in a chronicle where you're just kind of briefly describing what happened each year, it's much easier to say, oh, and in this year, the people rose up and burned the 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 guy in charge of the fiscal bureau and or whatever. And then you move on next entry. The next year, the Arabs invaded and whatever. Um, that doesn't require any analysis in a full history like Honiatis is writing where you, you know, you give background and detail and so on. This is very poorly provided when it comes to the, the people of Constantinople, who they were, how many they were, how were they organized? Um, they clearly were, let, let me put it differently. There were throughout East Roman society, private associations. These were professional guild, uh, occupational guilds. These were religious confraternities. Uh, these were, right? So these are associations that um, are not, um, you know, part of the state system. They are, they're probably pervasive, right? So it's very likely, and I've only just recently become uh, kind of aware of this um, by you know, reading some articles and 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 about very specialized topics that you wouldn't think, oh, wait, this is going to give you a different view of like society. But it's very likely that pretty much everyone, I mean, free citizens belong to either some occupational group, um, well, you know, worship group, they, you know, confraternities attached to this church or that church. We have to see all that through these very few snippets of information that appear in just random, odd, sort of marginal sources that, you know, the historians don't often look at. Um, little, little documents that survive here and there, or just casual mentions in the hagiography, things like that. So you could potentially come up with a very different view of civil society, right? Very different from like older views, which were that, uh, this was an atomized society, nothing held it together as every man for himself and so on. And, you know, <clears throat> it's possible that we'll end up one day at exactly the opposite point of view. It's a highly interconnected society with lots of private associations. You wouldn't know any of that from the historians, which is, you know, why this hasn't been a big picture of our, a big part of our picture of this society. Um, you know, and, and a lot of colleagues are, are working to fill that in and that's great. 
But from Koniakis, you would never know this. All right. So for him, the people are just this lump mass, the ochlo sometimes, you know, the, just the, the mob or whatever. And that's fairly consistent with his class outlook. And yet he gives the picture, he gives the game away a couple of times. So I, I noticed some passages. I talk about these in the Byzantine Republic book. Um, so one is the point at which um, the um, the emperor Isaacius Angelos is deposed 1195. He's deposed by his brother, um, Alexius III. Um, and Koniatis has a passage where he talks about how um, you know, the news arrived. This happened at a at a military base camp outside of Inthrace. So he deposes his brother. Now, the, you know, the next thing for every emperor is to obtain is a secure recognition of his status by all of the stakeholders in the republic, whom Koniatis lists, and he lists the Senate and, uh, well, also the the court, the Senate and the demos, the the people. And he says when the people uh, heard the announcement. They didn't engage in seditious behavior. They were all calm and so on. Despite the fact that the army had removed from them their customary right to appoint the emperor. So he kind of recognizes it right there that, you know, they acquiesced in a decision made by the army. Um, By the way, he's not entirely right here. The armies had often appointed emperors, but those emperors couldn't like rule until they had also been. Uh, accepted in Constantinople. There are plenty of armies that acclaimed emperors only to have them rejected by Constantinople. So anyway, um, so he has that passage. And there's another very interesting one when, you know, the 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 demos is usually, you know, not a, not a villain, but something he sniffs at, sort of he's very aloof toward for most of the narrative. But um, in 1204, and so this is before the Crusaders take Constantinople for the second time and, you know, dismember the empire. So it's in this chaotic period when um, there's, you know, Alexius IV, Alexius V, and um, and they're fighting and the crusaders are camped on the other side of the Golden Horn and the people in the city are confused and it's this this chaotic moment. Koniatis actually recognized that the populace of the city, Totimodes, he says they acquitted themselves like men as if they were pressing the emperor, this is Alexis IV, to help them against the Latins whom they saw as foreign conquerors and not side with them as they were the patriots, patriotes, right? Um, but, you know, Alexis didn't you know, heed them and so forth. And in fact, the populace finding no um, response from Alexius in this matter, they organized their own defense of the city and appointed their own leaders. And, um, you know, Alexis V emerged from that kind of movement. Um, sorry, there are a lot of Alexi in this, yes, in this period. Too many. There, there are at least three of them who were emperors. Um, but Koniatis, because at that moment, he sees this kind of, you know, Romans v. Latins, and he takes this very patriotically. And at that moment, it's the people of the city whom he doesn't you know, he doesn't talk about their organization. He doesn't talk about their leaders. He doesn't, those things existed. He just doesn't talk about them, right? Were they organized by neighborhood? Were they organized by occupational groups? We don't know. Um, but he just, he just kind of sees them from afar, kind of stratospherically as the people. But in that moment, he actually praises them because they were like the patriots. They they took it upon themselves to defend the city. Um, so yeah, there are moments when 
even he will, you know, give this away. Well, as we wrap up today, I kind of um, wanted to ask a question which may come in in, in slightly multiple parts because I, I really enjoyed the book and I felt that collectively you you were somewhat making the argument that the East Roman state functioned really well, that it, it was a better governmental system than its neighbours and and uh, functioned well in a way that we perhaps don't see because of its territorial decline we tend to associate territorial decline with the internal failings of a system and i felt that your part of your argument was this government worked pretty well and that those territorial collapses were a separate issue and I, I felt that your book was particularly valuable in making that argument because I think most history books I grew up reading that I enjoyed um, were entirely deterministic, that they were saying because Western Europe rose and Byzantium fell, systems in Western Europe must have been great and, and the way governments should function, whereas Byzantium must have been uh, decaying for centuries and, and was decadent and, and poorly run. And uh I felt your book was trying was was not directly but was ending up correcting the that kind of view of history. Um yes, to a degree. Um let me first say that I don't take any pre-modern state as a model for anything that we should be doing today, just <laughs> to be clear. Yes. Um and 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 certainly not this one, but not not because it was worse than any other, but because um, we are at a point where I think we can imagine and actually carry out much better things. Um, and so I think it's a bad idea to look to the past. To, but, but also, I generally don't um, uh, see any reason for my like politics to have anything to do with like my historical scholarship when I'm talking about something I was like, you know, a thousand or 2000 or five or 500 years ago. Right. Um, and I find that's too often the case um, that we talk about pre-modern societies in ways that um, have some sort of direct bearing or are supposed to have some sort of direct bearing on political decisions that we make today. I, I completely sever those two things. They, they're just not anyway. Having said that, um, you are correct that the argument of the book is that this was a functional, a well-functioning society, pretty well regulated most of the time, um, and did, well, not just a good job of keeping itself, you know, uh, of preserving itself through a very difficult period of history but doing so with regard to a certain set of common values that not all of which we would find <laughs> reprehensible today. In fact, most of them are okay. A lot of them are not. For example, the, the emphasis on uh, you know, orthodoxy and conformity and the persecution of dissidents and, you know, you know, and that sort of thing. I, that, that's very problematic, uh, but it also goes back to problematic aspects of the Roman tradition. Um, I, Anyway, there are a number of things that I don't I don't particularly like 
the kind of Republican, the way that they enacted Republicanism. Um, we can do it without that much violence. Um, anyway, so this isn't by no means do I think of this as a model society compared to its peers. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, if I had to randomly pick, you know, if I had to be assigned to anyone. Of these, yes, I'd rather be in that one um, than what the, the Carolingian Empire, the, the, the Caliphate. Just like, good Lord. Um, no, these these were all very, very dysfunctional societies. And the ones that emerged in the West, by the way, I mean, this point needs to be made that it, Romania was a single state. Western Europe is just a, a chaotic medley of kingdoms and cities and occasional empires and peoples and languages and whatever that you know, it, they're not comparable as units in that way. So Western Europe is not the homeland of any, you know, particular person is not the, the polity. It's something much, much smaller, usually. Um, and with much smaller things, um, you, especially if they're sort of isolated, like, for example, for example, you know some other kingdoms that lasted as long as that of Constantinople? I don't know, Portugal. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Because you're not you're not dealing with Bulgars and Arabs and Avars and, and Mongols and you name hmm. it, right? Yeah. Um, or for that matter, you know, England. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, you know what else? Venice. Yeah, because you're a city state. It's like there are a lot of city states that last for a very long time because, right? But in terms of a, a state of that size, straddling two continents, which is like a passageway of peoples, right? And having to deal with what they dealt with for the millennium of medieval history, I think they did a pretty good job. So, yes, that is the takeaway. And because it lasted for so long, our focus really, really needs to be on why this lasted for so long and not why it, quote, declined when it did. Um, almost all of its moments of failure and, quote, when it lost territories is because of some extraordinary external shock. But its success its, its powers of resilience and revitalization, those all came from inside. And I think that's the most telling thing about this society. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And uh, normally I'd say, you know, goodbye, but I plan on bringing you back repeatedly to talk about this book. So I will see you again soon. I look forward to that, Robin, and I will prepare like... I will prepare like I did for this time. You you are, you, I got to say, you're amazing, really. I mean, <laughs> most podcasts don't make it past like episode 10. I think that's just, you know, and you've reached hundreds and hundreds now. I, I don't know, like 270 or something is posted, but you've probably done more for uh, patrons and so forth. And so you, you deserve um, real kudos for, for this success, uh, which rivals that of your topic. Uh, in, in podcast terms you're very kind i was going to say they keep going on and on so so do i thank you keep again. up the good work all right thanks again to professor goldellis who will of course return next week 
In the meantime, if you're interested in hearing more about those pesky, ambitious Latins, then why not check out the podcast Grand Dukes of the West? Josh Zucker is covering one of those lesser-known but fascinating stories, the rise of Valois Burgundy and its role in later medieval history. Visit granddukesofthewest.com or search for it wherever you get your podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.